We've read there Genesis 5 and 6, and we're going to have this series of talks about, about Noah, because the world of Noah's time and Noah himself is absolutely relevant for us today. Why do I say that? Matthew 24:37, talking about the last days, the Lord Jesus says, that as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And he goes on to, to say how the situation at Noah's time is going to be repeated in the days right before the Lord's return. And so therefore, those who will be saved in the last generation are represented by Noah and his family. And so it's really relevant for us to, to, to think a bit about, about Noah. Now, just for confirmation of that, Second Peter 3 talks about the last days and seems to imply that as water was the agent of destruction at the time of Noah, so fire will be in the last days. And a number of passages that talk about the, the judgment that is to come upon the earth in the last days, to, uh, at the coming of the Lord, talk about a flood. And whilst the word Noah isn't there, the idea is quite clearly that the flood at the time of Noah was representative of the uh, the judgment of the last days. And when all the final judgments on the earth are finished, Isaiah 54 verse 9 says that it will all be to God as the waters of Noah. Remember also the Lord's parable about the man who built his house on the sand and the guy who chipped away at the rock, and then the flood came. And the flood represents, in the Lord's thinking there, the final judgment at his return. And you notice that the, the flood waters were upon the earth for five months. Uh, incidentally, the siege of Jerusalem in 8070 was for five months, but uh, Revelation 9.10 speaks about a five-month tribulation in the last days. Now, let's think a little bit about what the world was like leading up to the flood. Well, there was a population explosion going on, because they had those huge lifespans, and I would suggest that each woman would have been bearing up to 200 kids. And don't forget that the human race has not evolved physically stronger and stronger. We're kind of devolving, if anything, weaker and weaker. And they'd have had a much better climate and, uh, and background situation, I, I think, to be healthy and, and produce uh, children in a very sort of, uh, in a very, very big time. And so, it could be that in the ten generations from Adam to Noah, if you work it out, each woman bearing up to 200 children, there could have been like two million people uh, produced uh, during that time. And then there was a growth in technology. Genesis 4.22 talks about Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artif artificer in brass and iron. There was industrialization, technical, technological explosion, Jubal, father of all such as handled the harp and organ, there was a growth in pleasure, in, in, in culture, and yet, of course, the imagination of man's heart was desperately evil at, at that time, and there was a, a wickedness on the earth, and you know, that doesn't really need any, any comment uh, at all. The world was filled, Genesis 6 verse 11 says, with Hamas, H-A-M-A-S, unrighteousness, and you can uh, think a little bit about that in terms of the situation in Palestine uh, at the moment. The sons of God, the faithful, had intermarried with the daughters of men. Spirituality was, was fading away. The faithful were now very, very few, etc., uh, etc. Et and <clears throat> all this is looking forward to 
the situation in our last days. So we can sort of relate a bit to the world that Noah was born into. But I want to give a, a maybe a slightly unusual take on Noah, because we need to understand him as a person if we're to understand how we should be in these last days, and the, the Noah category, the Noah class of people. That's who we want to be. Well, we're told Genesis 5, verse 29. Let's have a look at that again. Genesis 5, tw uh, 29. Lamech has Noah, and he says, This same shall comfort us, and the word Noah really means comfort or rest, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, you could take that as meaning that he was hoping that Noah would be the promised Messiah, but I read it another way. I read it as a bitterness and a resentment in Lamech that the ground had been cursed, and he's saying, well, this son, don't forget that these people would have had loads of kids, this one is going to be the one who's going to do all the the menial work for us, tending the, the land that God has cursed, so that we can get a bit of a break, so that we can have a rest. And then you read on straight after that, uh, Genesis 5.32, that Noah was 500 years old when he had his three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was 500 years old. Now, just look back in Genesis 5 at the ages of other people when they had their first kids. Uh, verse 25, Methuselah was 187. Verse 21, Enoch was 65. Verse 18, Jodad was 162. Verse 15, Mahalil was 65. Verse 12, Canaan was 70. Verse 9, Enos was 95. Seth was 105. And verse 6, uh, and it, it seems that Lamech himself was 182 from verse 28 when he had uh, Noah. So then, Noah was 500 when he had his children. But the other guys, the, the people at that time, they had their kids much younger. Now, why was that? I suggest that Noah was just the underdog in that family. He was the farm worker, the sidekick of the family. And that's why his family life got extremely delayed, as it often does, when, when people are, are used like that within the, within the family kind of economy. Now, <clears throat> what seems to happen in early Genesis is that you get two parallel accounts of the same incidents. You start this in chapters 1 and 2. You've got one creation account in chapter 1 and then a second one in chapter 2. I'm not saying they're contradictory, but they are parallel accounts that are, like the Gospels, focusing on different things. Now, that seems to be the case particularly with these genealogies. The Lamech that we meet there in chapter 5, verse 28, I think, is the Lamech you read about in Genesis 4, verses 18 to 22. Because both those Lamechs have got a guy called Methuselah as their father. Now, that seems too freaky to just be chance. It seems to me that this is one and the same Lamech. Now, that suggestion is not without its difficulties, but um, I, I believe that's what's going on here. Now, if that is the case, what about the Lamech of chapter 4, who also had Methuselah as a father? Well, he was the first polygamist. Uh, 
and he married a, a wife called Adar, which means in Hebrew adorned or decorated. So she was a, a dolly girl, and well, that's what, what, what you could take the name to, to mean. Anyway, he was the first recorded polygamist, and he kills a young man for, <clears throat> for insulting him and goes around boasting to his wives that he's killed this, this young guy. And Lamech had three other sons, who were all very high flyers. Chapter 4, verse 20, Jabal. Now this would have been, in this case, a brother of Noah. He was the leader of all the cattle owners. Jubal, 4, verse 21, was the leading musician of the age. Tubal Cain, the other brother, was the leader of all the metal workers. So how do these guys get the opportunity to pursue their careers and their social lives, it seems? Well, because Noah was the sidekick who did all the looking after of the land to feed them, who delayed his own marriage, etc., so that his very worldly and successful family could, as I say, develop their careers. So then this is not at all a very pleasant situation. Now, as I say, most of the people would have been producing a large number of kids, but it seems to be that Noah only had those three, those three boys. I get that really from Genesis 6 verse 18, where uh, God says to Noah, with you, the, that is you singular, Noah, I'll establish my covenant, and you, you singular, shall come into the ark, you, you singular again, and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then Hebrews 11 sort of implies the same, verse 7, where we're told that Noah prepared the ark to save his house or his family. So his family were his wife and the three boys, and their wives, but they didn't, uh, there's no record of any grandchildren. So you could suggest that they actually married those women just before they went into the ark, and they only produced children afterwards, after they came out of the ark. So then, Noah, it seems, only had three children. Now, for people with such huge lifespans, and with uh, the women, as I suggest, more fertile, more, more, more capable of, of bearing children than after all the thousands of years of sort of degeneration and getting, uh, getting soft, which, uh, which we've had, this is very unusual. And just having three kids would have made somebody at the very bottom end of society, just as it, uh, it is in a lot of primitive villages in, in the developing world uh, at this time. You've only got three kids, that's like nothing. And so it was a quiet, maybe broken man who was, who was saved, who was chosen as the one that God would work through. And that's just so typical of God, isn't it? How he works through the broken how he works through the little ones, he works through the abused, he works through the sidekicks, through, through the ones that are, are nothing. This was the one whom God chose. And so if you feel that you're on the edge, that you're left out, that you've been left on the shelf, that you're just the runaround for everybody else, and we all feel that in some ways at some times, if we feel like that, well, this was exactly the kind of person that God loves to use. Not Tubal Cain, not the great musician Jubal, 
not the great wealthy cattle owner Jabel, but Nut. It's like, uh, you know, David, all, all his uh, strapping brothers, and uh, no, God didn't want any of them. Oh, well, yeah, there's one more brother, old David, just a young kid out there looking after the animals. That was God's man. And so God's men and God's women of today are in essence just the same, if in our hearts we are the same. And so... God chose this Noah, that he was going to use him. Now, as you probably know, there's a lot of uh, similarities between the Genesis record of the flood and the, the myths that were going around Mesopotamia at uh, that time or a bit earlier. And those similarities are, are intentional. Now, Moses wrote Genesis or dictated Genesis while Israel were in the wilderness. And they wanted to know where they were coming from, where they were going to. They'd heard all these ideas from Egypt and elsewhere, rumors, gossips, legends about the flood, a flood, etc. And I think that Moses was consciously alluding to them all and showing Israel what was true and what wasn't. Now, in those legends, the Noah figure, the guy who makes a boat and survives the, the huge flood, he's exalted to divine status. He, he's a hero. He's the one who fights off the gods and survives the angry uh, flood that they throw. But not at all. This Noah that God chose was not like that at all. And so <clears throat> God told Noah what was what was going to happen and it seems that from Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 we can work out that God says to Noah that man's days are now going to be 120 years now I don't think that's talking about lifespans because people still were living much much longer than 120 years uh, at that time Noah himself uh, died much older than that uh, chapter 9, verse 29, all the days of Noah were 950 years. So then, I don't think it's talking about lifespan. It seems that God is saying that in 120 years, that's it with humanity. And that's why we get the idea that Noah spent 120 years building this ark, gathering the, the, the animals or making preparation uh, for the gathering of the animals, gathering all the food. Remember that he's told, uh, chapter 6, verse 21, take, uh, take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and gather it to you. It shall be for food for you and for them, for the animals. Now, the flood, or the time that uh, they were inside the ark, works out at about one year and ten days. Now, that's a huge amount of food. And to know what each animal needed, he would have had to spend ages observing the animals, finding the food, gathering the food. Yes, this was 120 years work, uh, worth of, of work. And don't forget, he was running around trying to feed his, uh, his, uh, his brothers and allow them to have their career, etc., and get on with their music and their metalworking and all the rest of it. So then, the ark became Noah's life work. 
And there's a, a lot of parallels between the ark and Noah himself. For example, chapter 8, verse 4, the ark rested on Ararat. It knowed on Ararat, because the word Noah means rest or, or comfort. And so the ark rested, the ark knowed on Ararat. So then the ark was, as it were, Noah. Now, in the New Testament, First Peter chapter 3, we're told that the ark represents our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he gave himself to this work. It was his life's work. Although all the time, as I say, he was getting on with his menial little uh, tending of the land, looking after his uh, family, etc., etc., I mean, his uh, father's family, being the, the runaround for everybody else. But he actually had this huge project going on. Now, you can see how relevant this becomes for all of us, that we might feel that, who am I, just doing my boring, mundane, menial thing, the sidekick of, of everybody else, maybe, you know, that's how we feel, maybe, uh, raising kids, working in the workplace, in the home, it's the same old scene, and it seems we're doing everything for everybody else, uh, and we're sort of uh, left, as it were, just an insignificant little person, and the way that society is structured these days, the feeling of insignificance, and of irrelevance, and of meaninglessness, it is absolutely major. But Noah must have had that very clearly. And yet, despite all those feelings and being used like that, and we tend to feel that's how we use, but Noah really was, I think, used like that, um, he had this huge project that he was building this ark and gathering these animals or finding out about them and gathering all this food. This was his project. And that's the same, of course, with, with us, that we have this huge other thing going on in our lives. That that's just all that menial stuff that we're doing, that's just existence. Okay, but we have this wonderful project going on to build this ark, to sell our souls for this great project because we know that that rain is going to come, that what God has said is going to happen. Now, we're told that Noah was 500 years old when he had those children. Uh, chapter 5, verse 32. And the flood came when Noah was 600. You see that from chapter 7, verse 11. And yet we suggested that he actually spent 120 years preparing it. Chapter 6, verse 3. That God appears to him and says, 120 years, this is going to happen. Uh, therefore, make the ark and gather the animals. So then, if the flood came when Noah was 600, he started preparing it when he was 480. And when he was 500, he had three kids. So it's possible that he wasn't married when the call came to build the ark, and he certainly didn't have children, because he didn't have them until he was 500. So then God told him, when he was 480, when he didn't have any children, that in 120 years there's going to be a flood, and it's all going to be destroyed, everything here is all going to be, be finished, but if you build an ark, you can save you and your family, your wife and your three sons and their wives. 
And so he believed that. There he was, the guy who was kept so busy he didn't even have a chance for himself to, to focus on his own life, uh, to have his own family, etc. No, he was just the slave, as I suggest, of, uh, of a rather abusive father and a sort of playboy three, three brothers and probably a whole stack of other, other kids as well. But he believed what God had told him. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says that he was moved with fear, or was reverently apprehensive, at what God had told him, and prepared an ark in order to save his family. But remember that he started doing that when he was 480, when he didn't have any children. And maybe he didn't even have a wife. So you can imagine what he'd have been talking about when he started dating his wife that, you know, I got this plan, this is what's going to happen, and my life is uh, about building an ark and getting animals into it, all the animals, clean and unclean, and, uh, and getting food for them. Now, I mean, that's hardly a sort of a good chat-up line, is it? But my point is that his whole life was focused upon that, and in his relationships with others, and obviously in his marriage, uh, but, but uh, in all his relationship with others, this was him, just as it should be for us, that we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back, and we are preparing against that day, and we are seeking to bring others to that great salvation, to give them a way of escape. <clears throat> so then, he had only three children, because he built the ark to save his family. And there were just those three, three sons. Now, as I say, that was not very many, considering that, uh, okay, there was at least a hundred years between when he was 500, when he had the three sons, and when he was 600. So then, what happened? Uh, why didn't his wife produce more kids? Well, you could assume then that she was uh, barren, I assume or that she was not very fertile, let's put it that way. And that's why one of the blessings when they come out of the ark is that God says to Noah, be fruitful, you will now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So then he did get married, but again in the eyes of the, of the world, he was uh, unlucky. He'd married a woman who wasn't very fertile. And we might think three, three sons isn't, isn't a bad production these days, but in those days that would have been pathetic, quite honestly. To produce three kids in, what, 100, 120 years of marriage, that, that was absolutely nothing. And so it seems to me that, again, it's a sign that he was a little nobody, like uh, someone of the lowest possible caste or caste, as it were, in Indian society today, that just about manages to marry someone of their own, uh, of their own caste, and uh, may produce a, a few children. That's the sort of picture that we're getting of, of Noah. But he was God's man. He was God's man. He was the one who was going to be the potential saviour of the world, and the one who would be the only one who would come through this judgment that was, that was to come. We're told in First of Peter 3, verse 20, that in the days of Noah, the patience of God waited. And it doesn't, that Greek word doesn't just mean waited. It means that it, it, it waited for something. 
expected something. So God was eagerly looking at, at the world that he was so sad with and had to destroy, and yet he eagerly wanted someone, or some more people to be saved. And what a tragedy when he saw Noah preaching. Peter also says Peter uh, that Noah was a, a preacher of righteousness, Second Peter 2 verse 5, and yet nobody responded. And why was the period of, of building so long, 120 years? Because of God's patience. Because God was waiting for, expecting, repentance. But he must have been so thrilled that at least somebody, that this little man Noah, and his, it seems to me, lower caste wife, and his three, three kids, that they had turned to him. So there's this sort of, servant, the one who had just been chosen from birth by, by the father, this one is going to be the runaround, this is the boy who's going to be tending the, uh, the farm and the land and this horrible curse that this God put on our land, he's the one who's going to be dealing with the curse. This was the one that God chose. And again, we can feel the similarity, can't we, that we're the ones afflicted by the curse uh, and just frustrated by the frustrations of life, and yet we are the ones that God has chosen. And we have this huge other project going on in our lives. So then, <clears throat> we're told in, as I say, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But the Greek word translated of there can also mean by. He was a preacher by righteousness. So then, his example of belief in God's word was his witness. When we're told that he was a preacher, that doesn't mean he was standing on a street corner, as it were, necessarily. I think it was his example. Building this ark, telling the people why he was doing it, of course, because people would have said, why are you building that? Why are you doing that? Uh, and it's the same with our witness. It's not so much standing boldly on a street corner, just telling people, but it is our example and the way we're structuring our lives, which is so radically different to the way other people do, it's that which is the witness and which begs the question, why are you doing that? You know, why don't you have a pension plan? Why don't you this, that, or the other? Because I believe Jesus is coming back to the earth. Now, again, this is quite a, quite a challenge. Because our lives should be as radically different to the world around us as Noah's was. Radically different. Because there was a huge difference between Noah and everybody else around him. Because there was this huge project he was involved in. What are you doing getting to know all the animals? What are you doing foraging around there in the forests? What are you doing experimenting feeding those wild animals, Noah? Because I'm going to take them in the ark. Because it's all everything around here is going to end. And no, people would have just... They would have really thought he was crazy. We're told in an admittedly difficult passage, 1 Peter 3.19, Peter says that, in a sense, Christ preached to those people at that time through his Spirit. And that's to be connected with something Peter wrote at the beginning of that letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 11, where he says that the Spirit or the disposition, the mind of Christ, was found in all the Old Testament prophets. Now, there's only one spirit. 
And the same spirit of holiness which was in Jesus was therefore in Noah. The fact that he was spiritual, that he had the spirit of God in the sense of his disposition, his mind, his, the, the spirit that he exuded. It was a spirit of God which is the spirit of Christ. You, incidentally, in Romans 8 verse 9, you've got the three terms, the spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ, all kind of equated. So then, in what sense then was Christ preached to that generation by Noah? In that, I suggest, he had the spirit of Christ. The same personality, the same attitude of gentleness, of faith, of devotion, of activity, of seeking urgently to save others that was found in Jesus, was found in Noah. And in that sense, the Spirit of Christ was in Noah as it was in all the prophets. And so, when we're told that Noah is to be our example and that we are to be the ones like Noah who who go through the uh, the flood of the last days, the ones who prepare an ark to the saving of ourselves and our own house, as it were. This is the sort of, of witness that we should be making. You imagine how he'd have raised those kids. I mean, their whole lives would have been taken up with the boat, the boat, the boat, the animals, the food, the flood that's going to come. And, uh, of course, there hadn't been rain in that sense, the earth was watered with a mist, so it was all a totally strange concept. But that's what mum and dad would have been talking about. And as I, as I said, Noah's chat-up line when he was getting in relationship with his wife would have been about all this. So then <clears throat> God looked upon the earth, chapter 6, verse 6, and he was grieved. He didn't destroy the earth, as the the Mesopotamian and Egyptian myths said, uh, because he was, like, mad, because he got angry. He was grieved. He was really grieved. And it repented the Lord, verse 6, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. But Noah, verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Instantly, the eyes of the Lord there could be referring to, to the angels. They were watching the whole situation just as they are in our lives. Now, when we're told that Noah found grace, that shows that, for one thing, Noah was not perfect. He was saved by grace. It's not that God looked down and, and thought, aha, Noah, he's a pretty righteous guy, I'll save him. He found grace, and that needs to just be reflected upon. Now, it's an idiom also, to find grace can, well, is used uh, later on in the scriptures, uh, as a Hebraism, as an idiom, to mean that God heard a prayer. So then, Noah was praying to God, and God heard him. Now, we're not told him what, what he prayed about, but he found grace. The fact that Noah was saved by grace 
indicates, as I say, that he was not saved on the basis that he was a, a perfect man or that he didn't sin. He needed grace. And every now and again, you, you do get a few indications of Noah's weakness, which we'll talk about uh, maybe in the next talk. Uh, of course, the classic one is that he, he gets drunk. Um, right at the end of the whole story, the story sort of ends on a rather sort of uh, unexpected note, that you're expecting Noah to go out and set up a wonderful spiritual kingdom on earth, and he, he goes out the ark and gets, gets stone drunk. Um, and I don't think that's because, well, he didn't know about about wine. I think that's, uh, or alcohol, you know, I think that's a sort of um, uh, a convenient uh, excuse to kind of justify him. I mean, if his brothers, or at least the people of his generation, had figured out uh, about brass and iron and pipes and organs, uh, musical instruments, etc., if they were that developed, I think it's pretty clear that they knew all about alcohol, or they knew about making wine and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, I can't really see that uh, he was just uh, sort of some sort of innocent and ignorant. And I do wonder if his years of being treated as a sidekick, that awful kind of life that he had, I wonder if he had started abusing alcohol at, at that time, because that would have been absolutely typical, as it is absolutely typical for, for people today. So anyway, whatever it was, he found grace, and he, he sought it. He, he, he wanted it. Um, the old world was not spared, Second Peter 2.5 says, the implication being that Noah was spared. Again, it's, it's not so much a, a reward for righteousness, but a being spared. And yet we're told in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was perfect. That is, he was complete. There was a, I don't think it means necessarily sinless. Well, of course it can't, because only the Lord was, uh, was sinless. Um, but every part of his life was dedicated to God. That's the whole lesson of, of the burnt offering, wasn't it? That our lives are opened up before God, and every part of it. It's not Sunday religion. It's not even a case of opening the Bible every evening and reading a chapter or so, and yet the rest of our day at work or in the home, living completely like everybody else does, and sort of sanctifying it by a, a little bit of Bible reading in the evening. No. The, the, the perfect or, or the complete life is where every part of our thinking is affected. Now, again, chapter 6, verse 9, we're told that Noah was was just, or he was righteous. But we've seen that he was saved by grace. He found grace in, in God's eyes. Now, <clears throat> he was righteous. But in what sense was he righteous? Well, this idea of being just or righteous and yet finding grace, I mean, this sounds like something, something out of Romans. Hebrews 11, verse 7, says that Noah's righteousness was that which came from being justified by faith, because that's the whole point of Hebrews 11, talking about faith, but faith in what? Faith in God's salvation, faith in God's grace. Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. 
So when we read there that he was just or righteous in Genesis 6 verse 9, that's imputed righteousness. The righteousness which cut or the justness which comes by faith. So how did all this work out? Noah must have, I think, thought something like this. Well, we're all sinners, me included, and quite rightly, this flood is going to come and destroy the whole lot of us, me as well as the rest of the world. But wait up. God's just told me that I can build an ark and get out of this, that I don't have to die that eternal death. Why? I'm a sinner. For we know he was a quiet alcoholic. But anyway, he was certainly a sinner. Why? He says, I'm a sinner. Uh, and I deserve to die in this judgment that's coming, because I'm not perfect. So how can it be that I, little Noah, little nobody Noah, with all my weakness and dysfunction, that I can survive this judgment? God has told me, you can get out of this, Noah. But I'm a sinner, and the judgment's coming because of sin, right? And I'm a sinner. I'm not Jesus. Well, not that he knew about Jesus in that sense. Uh, but, you know, he said, well, I'm a sinner. So I'm worthy of destruction. But God said, I can get out of it. How can that be? Aha. Uh -huh. God must be willing to count me as if I'm righteous, although I'm not, and therefore he won't destroy me with the world of the ungodly. Wow. He counts me as if I'm righteous. Well, I believe that. And so I'm going to go on building the ark, and I'm going to seek to persuade as many other people as possible to accept this good news, that God is willing to count them as righteous, although they're not, although they're sinners, and try and persuade them to jump on board that ark with me. Now, that is exactly our situation, isn't it? Exactly. I think that's how he must have reasoned. And that's exactly how we should. And so, just finishing off there in verse 9, Noah walked with God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us in our lives today to walk with God? I think it means to be aware of him, that as you're walking down a street or you're walking in a shop or you're at work, that somehow the underlying heartbeat is of God, of Jesus, of his word. Just uttering a little mini prayer of thanks for little things that are, I don't know, something that, that uh, you, you knocked a cup off the table, but you just finished drinking your coffee. Thank you, Father, that that wasn't full of coffee. Thank you for this. To have a grateful heart, a thankful heart, to walk with God, to see God around you, to, to recognize failures, even though I say little failures. Sorry for uh, not speaking as nicely as I, I could to, uh, to him or to, or to her. It's not just a case of, ah, oh, yeah, well, I'm on a journey. Because, well, that's very popular to say it these days, oh, I'm on a journey, he's on a journey. Well, everyone is moving, but the question is, where are you moving to, and with whom are you moving on that journey? And this is the whole point, to walk with God, to feel his presence, to practice the presence of God, as has often been said, to all the time somehow have him there. That's why I really encourage people to have a pocket Bible with you all the time. Just open it now and again. Grab half a verse. Dare I say it? You can even do it while you're driving. 
Uh, just get half a verse in your mind. Bring the mind back. Just have that feeling that He is there. Creation is all around us. And in that sense, God is not far from every one of us. Because this whole thing is not just left ticking by clockwork. God is actively present. God is actively involved all around us. These are just some of the things that I think walking with God is all about. And of course being perfect, being complete. Not, not as I say sinless, but there being every part of our lives affected. Not just our evenings, not just maybe our family life, but also our work life, our business life, not just our meeting life, our meeting with, with other believers, but every part. So that when we go to sleep at night, we are on some level or another thinking of him, of his word, of his kingdom, of the future that we believe like Noah is surely going to come. And that great salvation that we believe we surely will have.